him and me. Then two men of a kind you never want to meet came through the front door. The taller one beckoning to the bartender, the shorter man scanning the tables, waiting for his eyes to adjust to the darkness of the bar's interior. Got to Dee Dee, Dave, call me, Dallas said, dropping his fork and steak knife in his plate, pulling his leather jacket off the back of his chair. He was out the back door like a shot. He made it as far as a lavender Cadillac where a man as big as the sky waited for him, his arms folded on his chest, his wraparound mirror shade swimming with distorted images of minarets and broken glass sprinkled along the top of a stucco wall. The two men who had come in through the front of the bar followed Dallas outside. I hesitated, then wiped my mouth with my napkin and went outside too. The parking area had been created out of crushed building material that was spiked with weeds. The wind was blowing hard, and the royal palms out on the boulevard thrashed and twisted against a perfect blue sky. The three men whom I did not know had formed a circle around Dallas, as though each of them had a fixed role he had played many times before. The driver of the caddy had the biggest neck I had ever seen on a human being. It was as wide as his jowls, his tie and collar pin like formal dress on a pig. The man who had spoken to the bartender was the talker. He wore polyester sports clothes and white loafers and looked like a consumptive, his hair as white as meringue, his shoulders stooped with bone loss, his face netted with the lines of a chain smoker. Whitey is supposed to carry you for sixteen large, he said. That ain't his money. He's paying a point and a half vig a week on that. No, Dallas, you don't talk, you listen. Everybody appreciates what you did for your country. But when you owe 16 large, that war hero shit don't slide down the pipe. But the man who caught my eye was the short one. He seemed wrapped too tight for his own body. His mouth was like a horizontal keyhole, the corner of his upper lip exposing his teeth as though he was starting to grin. He listened intently to every word in the conversation, waiting for the green light to flash, his eyes flickering with anticipation. The consumptive man rested his palm on Dallas's shoulder. What? You think we're being hard on you? You want Ernesto to drive us out in the glade so we can talk there? Whitey likes you, kid. You got no idea how much he likes you, how kind you're being treated here. You gentlemen have a problem with my friend Dallas? I asked. In the quiet, I could hear the palm fronds rattling above the stucco wall, a gust of wind tumbling a piece of newspaper past a spiked iron gate. No, we don't got a problem, the short man said, turning toward me, the sole of one shoe grinding on a piece of broken mortar. His hair was peroxided, feathered on the back of his neck. He wore platform shoes and a dark blue suit that was cut so the flap stuck out from his waist, and a silver shirt dancing with light, and a silk kerchief tied around his throat. His eyes contained a cool green fire whose source a cautious man doesn't probe. Dallas has a phone call, I said. Take a message, the short man said. It's his mother. She really gets mad when Dallas doesn't come to the phone. He's a cop, the driver of the caddy said, removing his shades, pinching the glare out of his eyes. The short man and the man in polyester sports clothes took my inventory. You a cop? 
the short man said, smiling for the first time. You never can tell, I replied. Nice place to hang out, he said. You bet, if you want a tab, I'll talk to the bartender. The short man laughed and stepped close to Dallas and spoke to him in a whisper, one that caused the blood to drain out of Dallas's face. After the three men had gotten back into their caddy and driven away, I asked Dallas what the short man had said. Nothing. He's a jerk. Forget it. Who's Whitey? Whitey Bruxall. He runs a book out of a pizza joint in Hallandale. You're into him for sixteen grand? I got a handle on it. It's not a problem. Inside the bar, he pushed aside his food and ordered a scotch with milk. After three more of the same, the color came back into his cheeks. He blew out his breath and rested his forehead on the heel of his hand. What did that dude say to you? I asked. One, one, five, Coconut Palm Drive. I don't follow. I have a six-year-old daughter. She lives with a grandmother in the grove. That's her address. He stared at me blankly, as though he could not assimilate his own words. What happened to her mom? I said. She took off with a guy who was running coke from the islands in a cigarette boat. They hit a buoy at fifty knots south of Pine Key. I knew what was coming next. I might have to take my little girl and blow Dodge, he said. But Dallas did not blow Dodge. Instead, I saw him talking on a street corner in Apalaca with Ernesto, the leviathan driver of the lavender Cadillac. The two of them got in the caddy and drove away, Dallas's face looking much older than he was. Twice I asked Dallas to go to the track with me, but he claimed he was not only broke but entering a 12-step program for people with a gambling addiction and that he'd gotten a job as an armed guard for an armored car company. Spring came, and I disengaged from Dallas and his problems. Besides, I had plenty of my own. I was trying to get through each morning with aspirin, vitamin B, and mouth spray, but my Lindley's colleagues at the Miami PD were on to me. My irritability, the tremble in my hands, my need for vodka Collins by noon became my persona. The pity and ennui I saw in the eyes of others followed me into my sleep. I went three weeks without a drink. I jogged at dawn on Hollywood Beach, snorkeled at the tip of a coral jetty swarming with clownfish, pumped iron at Vic Tanny's, ate seafood and green salads at a surfside restaurant, and watched my body turn as hard and brown as a worn saddle. Then on a beautiful Friday night, with no catalyst at work, with a song in my heart, I put on a new sports jacket, my shined loafers, and a pair of press slacks, and joined the crew up in Apalaca and pretended once again I could drop lighted matches in a gas tank without consequence. That's where I got my second look at the short man who worked as a collector for Whitey Bruxall. He stood in the open doorway, scanning the interior, forcing others to walk around him. Then he went to the bar and spoke to the bartender, and I heard him use Dallas's name. The bartender shook his head and occupied himself with washing beer mugs in a tin sink but the collector was not easily discouraged. He ordered a seven-up on ice and began peeling a hard-boiled egg on top of a paper napkin, wiping the tiny pieces of shell off his fingernails onto the paper, his eyes on the door. Stay out of it, I heard a voice say inside my head. 
He wore stonewashed jeans and a yellow see-through shirt and a pork pie hat tipped forward on his brow. His back was triangular like a martial arts fighter's, his facial skin as bright and hard-looking as ceramic. I stood next to him at the bar and waited for him to turn toward me. Live in the neighborhood? I asked. Right, he said. I never did catch your name. It's Elmer Fudd. What's yours? I like those platform shoes a lot of Superfly types are wearing those these days. Ever see that movie Superfly? It's about black dope pushers and pimps and white street punks who think they're made guys, I said. He brushed off his fingers on his napkin and pulled at an earlobe, then motioned to the bartender. Fix Smiley here, whatever he's drinking. You see... When you give names to other people, it's not just disrespectful, it's a form of presumption. He nodded again. Right now, I'm waiting on somebody and I need a little solitude. Do me a favor and don't piss in my cage, okay? Wouldn't dream of it, I said. Were you in Nam? Dallas was. He's a good kid. The collector got off the bar stool and combed his hair his eyes roving over the crooked smile on my face, the booze stains on my shirt, the table wet on the sleeves of my new jacket, the fact that I had to keep one arm on the bar to steady myself. I stacked time in a place you couldn't imagine in your worst dreams. Yeah, I've heard the bitch sweet up at Rayford is a hard ride, I said. He put away his comb and looked at his reflection in the bar mirror. His cheeks were pooled with tiny pits, like the incisions of a knife point. He placed a roll of breath mints by my hand. Nah, go ahead and take them. Gratis.